So don't be disillusioned by everyone else seeming to be like predicting the next Apple or whatever. Some will be lucky and others won't. And But on average, you're going to do much better by not trying. Welcome to the Canadian Couch Potato Podcast, where we help you become a better investor with index funds and ETFs. I'm your host, Dan Bordelotti, and this is our first episode of 2017. Now, before we get to it, I want to thank the thousands of listeners who downloaded our first two episodes and sent me your feedback and your ideas for future podcasts. The response has been great so far. Uh, Just after the second episode went live, we briefly hit number one in business podcasts on iTunes. So if you enjoy the show, please help spread the word by rating it or reviewing it in iTunes, which really does help to grow the audience. Now, on today's podcast, our guest is Lars Kroyer, and he is a very smart guy. He was born and raised in Denmark, but educated in the U.S., including an MBA from Harvard Business School. And today he lives and works in London, where he is the founder and managing director of AlliedCrowds.com, which is an organization that provides research on crowdfunding in developing countries. In his past life, however, Lars was a hedge fund manager. He was chief investment officer of Holt Capital based in the UK from 2002 until he closed the fund in 2008. So you're probably asking, why did I invite a former hedge fund manager onto a show devoted to couch potato investing? And the reason is because he's had a change of heart. In 2010, he wrote a book called Money Mavericks, Confessions of a Hedge Fund Manager, and admitted to a New York Times interviewer that in many cases, hedge fund investors would be better off simply buying index funds. Then in 2013, Lars published a book called Investing Demystified, in which he argues that the average investor should just give up all hope of market-beating returns and instead just build a very simple portfolio of index funds. And in fact, his suggestion is to simply hold one index fund covering the global equity market and another holding bonds or other fixed income. The book is about to be released in a new edition this spring. And Lars has just launched a series of videos uh, on YouTube that summarizes the main ideas for those who might not want to wade through a whole book on this subject. So I thought it would be interesting to talk with Lars because most of the indexing advice that we get here in Canada comes from North American sources, but Lars writes from the perspective of an investor in the United Kingdom, which is kind of refreshing. But more important, I've always liked speaking with insiders in the world of active investment management, especially those whose message to the public is some variation of, don't try to do what we do because you'll lose. Warren Buffett is probably the most famous example. I mean, so many people try to pick stocks like Buffett because they think it's a recipe for market-beating returns. And yet, Buffett himself has been encouraging people to buy index funds since the 1990s. And in a similar vein, you know, Lars managed hundreds of millions in his own fund. And even today, he's an advisor for several investment funds that use active strategies. So his argument is not that beating the market is impossible. It's simply that the odds of retail investors outcompeting these institutional investors is remote. Now, I do have to apologize for the sound quality in this interview. We recorded it via Skype and the connection was pretty spotty. So some parts are not as clear as I would have liked, but I do hope you'll enjoy it. My guest on the podcast today is Lars Croyer, who joins us by Skype from his home in London, England. Lars, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. 
All right, thanks. Um, I'd like to start by asking you to share a little bit about your background. Um, you managed a hedge fund from 2002 to 2008, and uh, now we find you writing about index investing and advocating uh, an indexing strategy for most investors. Can you talk a little about how your change in philosophy came about? Yeah, it's funny. I often get accused of being, you know, the world's biggest hypocrite, um, <laughs> and and I'll try to explain why why I don't think I am. So my point with uh, well, let me go into my background a little bit. So I'm you know I'm Danish, but I spent uh, ten years in the U.S. where I did my undergrad in graduate school and really got started in the hedge fund industry, and then moved to London in '99, where I then set up my own fund in 2002. I'm still involved uh, on the board of several hedge funds, so I, I do have a bit of a, a foot in each camp. But my, my fundamental question really is that as an investor, it's my view that you have to start with the, the first question being forget about whether markets are efficient or markets can be beaten. The question you should ask is can you beat the markets? Can you as an individual or institutional investor or whoever is responsible for the money, can you beat the markets yourself? Or pick an investment fund that can do so for you. And it's my view that the overwhelming majority of investors have no chance whatsoever of beating the financial markets, and they should act accordingly. So I'm not actually saying that edge or the ability to meet markets doesn't exist. It's my view that to most people, that's not the relevant question. The relevant question is whether you can. So um, imagine my mom, right? My mom... Um, has no chance, and God bless her, but has no chance at all of competing with um, all the financial, I call them hedge fund, investment funds, tech, this or that, in picking a subset of securities from the stock markets that will outperform the index. And that drives the philosophy. Now, I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about your experience managing the hedge fund and maybe give us an example. I don't know how specific you might be able mm. to be, but just about the type of research that you would do in order to mm. try to, you know, put on a trade for the fund and, you know, mm. help listeners understand how, you know, as a as a retail investor investing on your own through an online brokerage, mm. you're just not going to be able to be mm. on the other side of that trade. Yeah, that's right. So we did a lot of work in insurance and in shipping and in... At this point, the Skype connection fails us. So let me just jump in and summarize Lars's point because it's an important one. He was describing the investment process that he used in his hedge fund, which included getting access to an enormous amount of information that simply isn't available to investors like you and me. The specific example that he used involved the shipping business. So he says that his team would get detailed analysis that covered not only individual shipping companies, but the characteristics of individual ships, you know, their age, their capacity, whether they had one hull or two. They were in contact with the suppliers who made the engines for these ships and so on. And then they would compile all of this information to see if they could identify, for example, one shipping company in Oslo and another in Singapore that had similar assets and risk exposures, but were trading at slightly different valuations. Now, the point he's trying to make here is that this is the level of analysis that hedge funds need to have if they're going to have any chance uh, of outsmarting the market. So if you're making stock picks because you notice some company raised its dividend three years in a row, or even if you read through the whole annual report, 
I mean, you're fooling yourself if you think that kind of publicly available information is going to give you any kind of an edge. The market knows this stuff already, and it's already factored it into the price of the stock. So you might be an above average investor, but never forget that a hedge fund manager might be on the other side of your trades. And I think, you know, if if you wanted to make an argument in favor of that type of investment, you could say, well, I don't need to be able to do it myself. I can just hire a hedge fund manager or other fund manager to do it for me. You can me. just give money to Lars. That's what <laughs> Let me give you an argument against that. Ignore hedge funds, but I can get to that. So if you take investment funds, so mutual funds, right? And you say, suppose you have a thousand investment funds that trade in the same stocks as the S&P 500. Statistically speaking, over a 10-year period, only about 10 to 15% of those funds will outperform an index tracker over that 10-year period. So essentially, this is why I'm saying there are two forms of edge. One is that you yourself could go and pick the individual stocks and outperform the index, and that's very unlikely. I my mom. But the other is you could just pick the right investment fund. Right? But what I'm saying is that at, you would have to be able to pick the top 10 to 15% of investment funds which is really equally unlikely that you're able to do that. It's really an other form of edge if you were somehow able to magically pick only the best performing funds. In fact, that skill alone, and you should be richer than Warren Buffett, right? Because you could, you could be guaranteed to outperform the market every year, which is which, which not even Warren Buffett could do, right? And so, even that I think is unlikely. So it's not only that you can't beat the market, but you can't pick people to beat markets for you. And that, I'm saying, is the case for the overwhelming majority of investors. Now, these are ideas that you explored uh, in your book, Investing Demystified. And what you've done uh, most recently is put together a series of videos which explored similar mm -hmm. ideas to the ones in the book. Um, can you talk a little yeah. bit about why yeah. you decided to use the video format rather than, um, rather than mm -hmm. book format? Taking a step back, I'm, I'm giving all the money I make from the books uh, to charity. I find it a super interesting topic, and I frankly feel quite strongly that a lot of people's lives would be far better off if they invested along the lines I, I, um, I describe. What I also find is that realistically, you know, how many people actually pick up a 200-page book about investing? You know, it's a small, small subset of the number of people that will uh, be – willing to spend five, six minutes to, to check out a YouTube video. So it's almost like you could be watching another one of those cat videos or you could see a, a, you know, an investment video that might change fundamentally how you view investing and benefit you in the very long run. So it's just a much smaller ask. And I felt that by putting together these five videos, I could tell a story um, and hopefully convince some people that uh, this is a better way for them to manage their assets. And, and, um, and I must say the response has been pretty overwhelming. It's got a lot of, lot of views uh, in the month and – what is it now, month and a half since I put it up. And we will put a link to uh, the videos uh, up at the end of the interview, and uh, I'll also put a link to it uh, on my blog. Um, I wanted to get into some of the specific uh, advice that you give in the videos. Um, and you favor just a very simple – uh, basically two fund portfolio, uh, one index fund tracking the global equity market, and then a second piece, and we'll talk about that in a minute, uh, that you call the low risk part that is some combination of bonds and cash. 
Um, but I wanted to discuss the idea of putting uh, all of your equity investment into a single fund that tracks the global market. Um, the model mm-hmm. portfolios I recommend on my own site uh, tend to recommend uh, about one third uh, of the equity portion in Canada for Canadian investors and then the other two thirds mm-hmm. in a global equity fund. Um, I think you would probably describe mm. that as a home bias. And I wanted to ask you to share your thoughts on that idea. Well, first of all, like, let's just agree that in the overall like world of investing, we're not that far apart. So let's not like we're discussing nuances here. Like if anyone came to me and said, you know, I have 50% of my equity in Europe and the rest in the rest of the world, I wouldn't say, oh my God, how could you, <laughs> right? You know, what, like if, you know, this is so, you're doing all right. Yeah, I mean, so, so why do I think you should not have a home bias? I think like really there's a tendency in investing to look just as our investing portfolio as sort of a separate part of our lives. But in reality, you if you think of investing almost holistically, like what, where are all your assets allocated, right? And in the case of most of us, the vast majority of our assets are actually local already. I think an example is is, is that sometimes brought up is think of a Japanese investor some 20, 25 years ago with all their equity exposure in the local, the Nikkei, and, and all their other assets also in Japan. You know, in the past 25 years, equity markets have been fine, but the Japanese markets have been absolutely horrendous. Mm-hmm. Um, and that happened at the same time as all the other assets for the typical Japanese investor also declined in value. Their, their, their house price, the, the value of their job, the company they worked at probably did less well, et cetera, et cetera. So in my view, you should actually not invest in your local market and go global. But as I said, you know, in, in reality, particularly if you um, – I know in – you know, some some of the people that follow you probably think of not just Canada but of North America, and and if you take the U.S. and Canadian market together, that represents a large portion of the MSCI World Equity uh, Index. So, so obviously there's a lot of overlap. So I'm not saying this is horrible, but I'm just saying theoretically, you know, um, um, it's better to not do it. And and uh, just to sort of almost repeat myself, you know, I'm Danish. <laughs> and 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 like imagine you had the same argument but just for Denmark. Denmark which represents like half a percent of the world equity market. And but for most of the Danish investors, all their assets are in Denmark. And then on top of that they put their equity portfolio in half a percent of the global equity markets. That doesn't make sense. And there are lots of historic reasons why that was the case. And people have this asset liability matching argument, which I also don't think makes sense. But but today you can quite easily invest in a global equity track. And I think that's the right that's the right investment okay. for your equity portion. So that's the equity portion. Let's talk about the low risk portion uh, mm-hmm. and what that might look like. Um, in the model portfolios that I recommend on my site, typically it's just a single bond index fund. So it just tracks the broad bond market. Um, mm. But again, there's a significant home bias here, which I think makes more sense on the fixed income side because yeah, everybody agree. wants to have yeah. currency fluctuations in their fixed income. But without yeah. maybe getting too specific about individual products, can you talk a little bit about how you would put together 
that low risk part? Yeah. Is it cash? Is it bonds? What maturity? Yeah. What currency? Apologies, the connection breaks up here again. Lars was explaining his suggestions for the fixed income side of his index portfolio. And these are very similar to what I recommend. First, although you want a globally diversified stock portfolio, including exposure to foreign currencies, you don't want any currency risk with your bonds. The vast majority of investors in Canada should just stick to bonds or GICs issued in this country and denominated in Canadian dollars. Second, you want this part of your portfolio to be very safe. So we're talking about government bonds and high quality investment grade corporate bonds only. No high yield bonds or other junk that's likely to fall along with your stocks during a downturn because those are not going to provide you with the diversification that you need. Finally, you want to pay some attention to the duration of your bond portfolio. Now, this can be a bit of a complicated topic, but in general, the idea is that if you're close to retirement uh, and you need to think about drawing down your portfolio in the near future, then you probably don't want to have a lot of bonds in there with 15 or 20 year maturities. You're better off holding short-term bonds, which are going to be much less volatile. So you could use, for example, an ETF where the average maturity of the bonds is two or three years. Whereas if you're a couple of decades away from needing the money, say you're in your 30s or 40s, you can use a bond index fund with an average maturity of 10 years or so. Uh, one of the things that mm. I was surprised about when I started writing about index investing and uh, started to gain a readership, I expected people to welcome the simplicity. I thought they would say, well, this is much superior to a portfolio that I have to put together from three dozen moving parts. And yet, in many ways, <laughs> uh, in many ways, it has been the opposite. A lot of people will look at a portfolio like yours or like mine and say, it can't be that simple. Or I have a million dollars in my portfolio. I need something more complicated than mm. simply one equity mm. fund and one fixed income yeah. fund. Why do you think people are so reluctant to embrace simple <laughs> yeah. investing solutions? I think there's this conventional system and billions and billions of dollars of marketing dollars telling us that we should somehow do something, be engaged with our portfolio, even down to like the the, the trading stock picking, beat the market, be a hero kind of stuff. And this sort of almost embracing that you can't beat the market to some people probably seems like cheap surrender. Also, it's terrible, like it's terrible cocktail party chatter, right? I mean, if you, if I, if you and I went to a bar together and talked about whether, you know, who's going to win the football game, yeah, that's neither here or there. But if you somehow talk about which stock is going to perform. A lot of people seem sophisticated, educated, smart, all of that stuff. But if you go to that same bar and say, I don't think I can beat the market, that doesn't, sound, that doesn't sound good, right? It doesn't sound clever. But in fact, for the vast majority of people, that's exactly what they should do. I will tell you, I hope this makes you feel slightly better. The overwhelming feedback I get from readers and people that have seen the videos is really it's it's really quite interesting because it's rarely the kind of like thank you for recommending me something that made me a lot of money because that's not my point at all. But um, because I don't think I know which way the markets are going, but I think I know which is the best portfolio for you. But the kind of feedback I get a lot of is this holy like, oh my God, I can't believe I all of a sudden have this much time. I used to spend 
tons of time and money trying to pick a port clever portfolio of stocks. And now I'm convinced that if I just have it in the, this broad equity tracker, it's a better portfolio. And I spend one-tenth the time, right? So it's actually, I get a lot of positive feedback from the simplicity of it all. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's, it, I got to tell you, it's, it's one of the most encouraging things I, I see is this, it's this, it's not cheap surrender. It's basically embracing that you can't beat the market and making that into a strength. And it will make you far, far better off in the long run in the overwhelming majority of cases. Mm -hmm. But there's no instant gratification. You don't, like, you might save a percent a year or a percent and a half a year, but, you know, to hold that up against the endless ads for all these funds that have outperformed and claimed to have outperformed the last five years and some story about some guy who was going to be the next Warren Buffett or whatever. It's very hard to like stay the course in the face of all that sort of all those story stories. So you have to come back to this principle of can you beat the market or pick someone to do it for you? And the answer to that is overwhelmingly no. And once you embrace that, you're going to be far better off. So actually the simplicity is something that once people embrace this, that's actually something that they find incredible, both from a money perspective, but, but particularly from a time perspective. Like, who has time to come from work and then pick stocks and compete with professionals? There's no chance. Yeah, and if they want to do that, I often encourage people to put a little bit of money aside in a play money account, use mm -hmm. that to scratch the itch, and then keep your serious money in an indexed portfolio and, you know, only only update it once or twice a year if you need excitement in your life you shouldn't do it with your savings right exactly i think i think per perhaps i'm i'm pretty well positioned to say that because i've been in the in the hedge fund industry for many many years and i i've seen incredibly smart well-informed people with fantastic access struggle tremendously to beat the markets and um it's pretty sobering to see that up close and as a result like you go there from from that level of expertise and you know computational skills and 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 knowledge and trading skills and knowledge and anything you can think of, and then you go to the average retail investor who who competes with that, and even that the first thing I mentioned can't necessarily beat the markets. It's so hard, and so. The faster people get into their head that they're unlikely to be able to do it, or at least accept that that's quite possible, the better off they're going to be. Mm -hmm. Now, I always found it interesting uh, if I hang out with people in the finance industry, even those who either work for a firm that does active management <laughs> or maybe even offer active management themselves, a lot of them invest their own money in an index portfolio. Mm -hmm. Do you mind if yeah. I ask you what portion of your own uh, portfolio is invested in a simple index strategy and what portion you take a more active approach with? I invest in the hedge funds where I'm on the board. And I, I do that because, well, first of all, I know these people very well and I'm very actively involved. But for everything else, I, I do what I say in my videos. I like world equity index trackers. And it's... It actually has a lot of advantages and never come to the surface, such as liquidity, and you can do it in a tax-optimized way and, and so forth. But, um, but no, I, I really believe it. Like, I don't, it's not like I have a, a small subset of the portfolio where I like, uh, buy, buy Apple and short Google or whatever people do. Um, I haven't actually sold a stock, I think, for 
eight years or something. I just hold these things. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just, yeah, it just sits there. And some years that's great and other years that's not so great. But my view is that over, you know, over a 20, 30 year period, I'd expect it to go up roughly in line with what equity markets have gone up in the past, which is sort of four and a half, five percent above inflation. And then hope I have a great 20 years as opposed to a terrible 20 years, but you don't know that sort of ex ante, right? You know, you can, you hope to be lucky, but you don't count on it. Everyone's always got the story, right? It's not like, you know, if you have 20 friends that invest in the stock market, the two that are the loudest are the ones that made the money. And so there's a huge selection bias. You only hear the successes. Like no one like screams very loudly about how they lost a lot of money in the stock market. So it seems like everyone's making money other than you, but it's not the case. On average, over time, you will do far better than vast majority of people. But of course, there will be the Warren Buffetts that will, that will beat you. You just can't pick them ahead of time. So don't be disillusioned by everyone else seeming to be like predicting the next Apple or whatever. They, they, they just, some will be lucky and others won't. And, but on average, you're going to do much better by not trying. Well, that's a great note to end on. Lars, thank you so much for joining us, and I wish you all the best with the video series. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. Okay, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Lars Croyer, author of Investing Demystified and the creator of a video series by the same name. I will include some links to the videos in the show notes for this episode, which you can find on my blog, CanadianCouchPotato.com. Just click on the podcast link in the navigation bar to see links for all of the episodes. In the meantime, you can find the videos by going to YouTube and searching for Investing Demystified. And now it's time for another installment of... Bad Investment Advice. The segment where we track down the very worst financial advice and explain why you should ignore it. Now, in the past couple of episodes, I highlighted some lousy commentary in the media. But this time around, I'm going to call out some truly outrageous advice given to one of my listeners. I'll call him Gary. And he emailed to tell me that he and his wife recently had a baby. And so they purchased a term life policy from an agent who worked for a large insurance firm. And during this process, Gary explained, the insurance agent also tried to sell them some mutual funds, and he had prepared a detailed presentation to sell them on the benefits of long-term investing. And during this presentation, the agent suggested that over the last 100 years, the average annual return on the stock market was about 12%. And so therefore, investors could expect similar performance from the company's mutual funds, which by the way, have fees of about 2% annually. Now, I think most listeners will immediately understand that this advice is not just unrealistic, it's insane. Anyone who suggests that you should expect double-digit returns from traditional mutual funds is either a fool or a crook, and maybe both. I'm happy to report, however, that Gary recognized this and did not sign on with this clown. And I recognize that's an extreme example, but I wanted to get into this topic because I have encountered many other estimates of future returns that sound much more reasonable, but don't necessarily hold up to scrutiny. 
So for example, an investor recently mentioned to me that her advisor suggested she should expect about a 3% real return on a retirement portfolio. Now remember, a real return is calculated after inflation. So if the cost of living increased 2% annually, you'd need a return of just over 5% before inflation to net a 3% real return. Now that doesn't sound nutty, but is it a realistic expectation? So that's a good question, and this is what I want to encourage you to do. Whenever you hear a claim like this, I suggest breaking it down into its components. So rather than focusing on a single number, you know, a 3% real return, ask how that number was calculated. So let's work through an example. We'll start by assuming that a balanced portfolio is a traditional mix of 60% stocks and 40% bonds. Then we'll ask, what's the long-term expected return on the stocks in the portfolio? Now, this is not a straightforward question, but for argument's sake, let's just assume now that it's 8% before fees and inflation, which is roughly the global average since about 1900. Then we need to consider the expected return on the bond or the fixed income part of the portfolio. Now, this is a little bit easier because with bonds and GICs, you can use their current yield as a pretty reliable guide. So, Today, a broad-based bond ETF has a yield to maturity of about 2%. A five-year GIC yields about the same. So let's use that 2% expectation for fixed income. Now we can calculate the expected return on the portfolio as a whole with some simple math. And I'm going to put a little tool on my blog to help you do this. So don't worry if you're not able to do it in your head. For now, let's just work through the specific example. So for the stock portion, which we said was 60%, we multiply 60% times our 8% expected return and we get 4.8%. Then we multiply the 40% bond component times a 2% expected return, we get 0.8. We add these two numbers together, 4.8 plus 0.8, and we get the expected return on the whole portfolio, which is 5.6%. So far, so good. But unless you found a way to invest for free, you've got to account for investing costs. Now, since we're couch potato investors, we use low cost index funds and ETFs, let's assume a cost of 0.5%, which is about what you would pay for a portfolio of TD's E-series funds. Options like the Tangerine Index Funds or even robo-advisors are actually a bit more than that. Uh, an ETF portfolio could be less than that, but that's a reasonable place to start. So if we subtract that 0.5 from the 5.6, we get an expected return after fees of 5.1%. So that is what we would call a nominal return, which means it doesn't account for inflation. So if we want to estimate a real return, we need to account for inflation as well. So what number do we use? Well, again, there's different ways to estimate this. I think a good place to start is the Bank of Canada's target for inflation, which since the 1990s has been 2%. So let's use that number. Now, to properly calculate the real return on a portfolio, you don't just subtract the inflation rate from the nominal return. It's a little bit more complicated than that. But most of the time, that'll get you pretty close. So in our example, with a 5.1% nominal return and 2% inflation, the real return on the portfolio would be right around 3%, which is what the advisor quoted to the investor that I spoke with. So this seems to be a reasonable estimate. But let's remember, we used a bunch of assumptions here, and the calculation is very sensitive to the inputs that we used. 
Now, the investor that I spoke to was retired, so maybe a portfolio of 60% stocks is a bit too aggressive for her. You know, maybe 50% would be more appropriate. Certainly, if you're using an advisor, your fees are going to be higher than 0.5%. They'd be at least 1% and possibly quite a bit more than that, unless your portfolio was very large. Many people believe a forecast of 8% is too optimistic for stocks. Maybe 7% is more realistic. And if we just make those three adjustments to the calculation that I just worked through, the expected real return now falls from 3% to less than one and a half. So, you know, it turns out if you're paying 1% in fees and you expect 7% from stocks and 2% inflation, your portfolio needs to be about 80% equities to have an expected real return of 3%. Very few investors can handle the volatility of an aggressive portfolio like that, especially in retirement. So my point here is that many people throw out these expected return numbers without thinking them through. So anytime you hear one of these claims, your job is to ask the person how they arrived at that number. And their process should be similar to what I've done here with a specific value for each variable in the formula and some explanation of where that value comes from. Then you can better evaluate whether it's realistic, right? And we can quibble with the specific values because you can never know with certainty what the expected return on stocks or bonds is, but you should at least be dealing with a realistic range. And if all your advisor does is reference the long-term returns of the best performing stock market in world history, while ignoring fees and inflation, like this genius selling mutual funds with the 12% expected return, then it's just another example of bad investment advice. And now it's time again for our Ask the Spud segment, where I take questions from listeners and readers of the blog. And once again, I'm joined by my PWL colleague, Amanda DL. Amanda, what is today's question? So our question today comes from Tommy in Sherbrooke, Quebec, and Tommy asks, I have a daughter, Sarah, who just turned 18 years old. She's saved $5,500 and used it to open her first tax-free savings account. Her portfolio includes three ETFs, 60% in foreign equities, 35% in Canadian equities, and 5% bonds. Since she will be investing for the long run, do you think it would be better to not use bonds at all to get more growth? What other suggestions do you have for someone who starts investing at 18? Okay. Thanks for the question, Tommy. And kudos to you, Sarah, for being such a great saver at 18 years old and for showing an interest in investing with ETFs at such a young age. It's great. Now, the conventional advice is that young people should be very aggressive investors. After all, you know, they have a lot of time on their side. It's very unusual for stock markets to deliver a negative return over any 10-year period. So if your time horizon is 50 or 60 years or more, why not put 95 or even 100% of your long-term savings in stocks? Well, I think that argument has a lot of merit. And if you truly understand all the implications of the decision, then sure, go ahead and build an all-equity portfolio. But I don't really think that any inexperienced investor can really understand those implications yet. I mean, at this point, I like to say you're like a fighter pilot who's only been in a flight simulator and you've never flown in combat. You really don't know how you're going to hold up until you've been battle tested. So let's always remember that if you're going to invest virtually all of your portfolio in stocks, you need to be prepared for the possibility that you could lose half your money, even if you're using broadly diversified index funds or ETFs. 
I mean, in 2008, 2009, we had a 50% decline in equities in about six months. And that could easily happen again. So it's true, if you're in your teens or your 20s, you've got a lot of time ahead of you and a lot of earning potential that you can use to make up a loss like that. But, you know, try telling that to a young student who just worked for two or three summers to save five or $6,000, or a young professional who, you know, just lost an amount equal to about a dozen paychecks. Um, Amanda, I'll just ask you, you're in your mid-20s, you've got a lot of time on your side, but how would you feel if you saved five or $6,000 and then lost half of it in, you know, less than a year? Oh, it would be so frustrating. Just as you were saying, for a young investor to save around five or $6,000 takes time. And to watch that slip through your fingers when you've worked so hard to get to that point so quickly, it would be a really tough pill to swallow. I know that personally, I couldn't stomach losing half of my savings in less than a year, which is why I would never be invested in 100% equities, regardless of how much time I have on my hands to recover from any losses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I suppose it depends on what type of investor you are. Um, you might be able to sock away five or $6,000 in a long-term investment and never look at it, but I don't know. Are you the type of person who would check your portfolio balance every day? Oh, for sure. Maybe not every single day, but I definitely check in regularly. So it's not like a loss of that size would go unnoticed to me. I'm sure as time goes on and my portfolio grows, I won't monitor my savings so closely. And I may not even notice a loss of a couple grand. I mean, I work with clients every day who have six or seven figure portfolios, and I'm sure they're not phased when their portfolio decreases by that amount. But for someone like me, it's definitely a different story. Yeah, it's a great point. I think, you know, if you're an, an adult and you've got a decent sized retirement portfolio, a couple of thousand dollars is not life-changing money for you. But if that's your life savings, you know, it, it means a lot. And that really is my concern here. Um, I'm worried that young investors who get badly burned, you know, could get scared out of the market for years or maybe even forever. And there's a lot of evidence that this happened with millennials who were just getting started with investing in 08, 09 when they got slammed by that financial crisis. Uh, and I certainly worked with investors too who are in their 30s now and were not only, not only endured that crisis, but the dot-com bubble of the early 2000s as well. And I just worry that these investors are only going to see the short-term risks of investing in stocks and not the long-term benefits. And if they get spooked out of the markets and end up holding all of their savings in GICs and cash during their working lives, they could really be in jeopardy of falling short of their retirement goals. There's a couple of other issues here to consider as well. The first one is that if you've earmarked your savings for the long term, you know, you might still end up needing that money in the next few years, right? If you're a young person, you might decide to enroll in a college or university program. You might get a good job offer and you need, might need to buy a used car to get to and from work. You might move into an apartment that needs to be furnished. So it might be true that it's never too early to save for retirement, but there's nothing really wrong with putting off those long-term savings for a few years if you're addressing other financial priorities. Amanda, I'll throw that one back to you. I mean, are you saving for retirement yet? Yeah, I've definitely started saving for retirement, but very modestly. PWL actually offers an RSP matching program that I wanted to take advantage of, so I've set up an automatic contribution that comes directly off of my paycheck. But I'm still in the process of paying down my student debt, and I'm saving for a future home purchase, so I don't contribute anything more than that. And then once I've achieved those shorter-term goals, 
I will probably ramp up my retirement savings. Yeah, I think that's the pattern that most people follow. I mean, you can start saving uh, for retirement when you're young and you can be aggressive, but uh, you probably are not going to make that your number one priority, you know, when you're in your 20s. So there's one final issue uh, to consider as well, and that is when your portfolio is relatively small, your rate of return actually doesn't have that much of an impact in dollar terms, right? Let's consider Sarah's $5,500 in savings, for example. She might have a great year, earn a 10% return with an all-equity portfolio, and she'd make $550. And instead, she earned, say, 4% with a balanced portfolio, she'd have an extra $220. Now, look, over the long term, the difference between 10% and 4% returns is absolutely enormous. I realize that. But right now, with a small portfolio, it's only a few hundred bucks a year. And it comes with all of those risks that we discussed. If it was guaranteed, that would be one thing, but clearly it's not. And I'm just not sure it's worth the additional risk. To me, at this stage of your investing life, I think you're more likely to regret being too aggressive than being too conservative. So here's what I'm going to suggest for Sarah and for other investors in their late teens or 20s. Start off with a fairly balanced portfolio, you know, somewhere between 60% and 75% stocks. Just get your feet wet for a couple of years, see how you react to the ups and downs in the market, find out what kind of investor you really are. You know, are you checking your account balance every day and feeling stressed when it's below its peak? You know, if markets tank, is your instinct to sell or do you get excited about buying on the cheap? You know, these are questions you need to ask uh, about yourself when you get started investing. But I will tell you also that the big test is going to come during the next bear market. If and when your portfolio loses 15, 20, 25% and that doesn't phase you, then you can consider making your portfolio more aggressive in the future. But until then, Sarah, I would say stay focused on savings because that is the habit that's going to have the biggest impact on your financial success. Thanks, Dan. And Tommy, I hope that answers your question. And remember, if you've got an investing question that you'd like answered on a future installment of Ask the Spud, please send it to mail at canadiancouchpotato.com. Dan responds to all of his emails personally, and if your question has broad appeal, he may answer it on an upcoming podcast. That's it for this episode of the Canadian Couch Potato Podcast. I want to give you a preview of what you can expect in the next couple of shows because I'm pretty excited about them. Our next episode is going to feature my interview with one of the elder statesmen of index investing. I'll be speaking with Charles Ellis, author of the landmark book Winning the Losers Game, as well as a new book called The Index Revolution. Then in a future podcast, I'll be joined by Andrew Hallam, author of The Millionaire Teacher, another hugely influential book on how to succeed with index investing. His book is available in a brand new second edition, and Andrew will be chatting about that as well as about his own experience as a globetrotting investor. So if you haven't subscribed on iTunes or your favorite podcast software, do that now so you don't miss either of these episodes. Before I let you go, I also want to give a shout out to the talented team that helps me put together this podcast. Nick Jaworski of Podcast Monster is our producer and editor. Jono Bacon is the rock star who composed and recorded all of the original music. Amanda DL helps out with the Ask the Spud segment. And Tara Hunt of Truly Social is the glue that holds everything together. Thanks also to PWL Capital, who makes all of this possible. And finally, a big thanks to you for listening. I'm Dan Bordelotti. We'll see you next time. Listener.